You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Sometime in the 19th century, somebody decided it was a good idea to move writing out of its prominent place at the apex of the liberal arts, rhetoric, and instead to pound it into an iron gate, a device for keeping the unworthy out of the real courses colleges offer. Sometime between then and now, perhaps in the 60s, reformers democratized that first-year composition sequence, introducing ancient innovations like argument structure and copia and revision to the masses. And now, in the era of Twitter and Trump and questions about why we have colleges in the first place, a pair of professors dares to make a first-year writing book affordable. And here we are, sitting with Dr. Richard Holland, ready to talk about his new writing textbook, Good Arguments, written with Dr. Benjamin K. Forrest. Dr. Holland, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. It's my pleasure. It's great to be with you. For the sake of disclosure here at the outset, I'm using Dr. Holland's book in my freshman composition courses next fall. And part of the reason that I'm assigning this volume is that unlike so many first-year writing books, uh, it's not priced to make students choose between a textbook and groceries for September. So I want to start with an impolite question. Uh, didn't anyone tell you, Dr. Holland, that students will pay 80 bucks for a first-year writing textbook? I, uh, I, ha- I have the sense that uh, in response to an impolite question, I'm, uh, I should give a snarky or sarcastic answer, but I can't think of one. Uh, <laughs> um, m- maybe I should say we're going to make our money in volume sales or something like that. That is know. a good answer. That's uh, a good answer. <laughs> Uh, but in all seriousness, I, I think it's a great idea for a Baker academic to make uh, the book financially accessible for as many as possible. I, I know what it's like to have uh, – I have my Amazon wish list is full of uh, books that I would have to forego groceries if I were to buy them. So I, I get that. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad the book is relatively inexpensive. I suppose I, I never really thought I was going to get wealthy from book sales anyway. <laughs> very good, very good. All right, now I'm going to talk like I'm actually educated in these things. Uh, your book's first chapters present readers with a long discussion of inductive and deductive lines of thought, syllogistic reasoning, and other structural concerns that go back at least as far as Aristotle. So what need do these conversations address that you saw in college these days, and how have you fared in your own classes teaching argument structure? Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, after after the book begins with a, a pretty short chapter that sketches out some of the most basic features of, of good arguments, we sort of dive right into reasoning and logic. And I suppose part of the need that this addresses is related to our anticipated audience. Uh, I fully expect uh, that most people who pick up the book will not have had any exposure to these ideas before reading it, uh, first-year first college students, for example. Um, I've even been told that there are some high school homeschool groups uh, that uh, use the book as their first introduction to reasoning and critical thinking, uh, or even first-year seminarians who didn't study philosophy or logic or critical thinking on the undergraduate level. Uh, as a side note, my, my own experience is relevant there. My undergraduate degree is in mechanical engineering, uh, and I certainly don't remember ever being exposed to any of the ideas uh, that the book addresses back in those days. So uh, the intent was to speak to that audience, those, those who've never heard of this, this, these things before, um, and to give them a straightforward uh, introduction that's as clear as possible uh, to both inductive and deductive reasoning, uh, common deductive forms, laws of logic, and those sorts of things. I suppose part of the goal was to make the material accessible 
um, to show that the fundamentals of reasoning and logic are, are easy to understand and are practical. Um, most logic textbooks I've seen are pretty intimidating. Uh, and I, I think that students who see those intimidating logic textbooks and don't have much exposure to these kinds of things could easily jump to the conclusion that uh, reasoning and logic are best left to the experts or philosophy majors or, or anyone other than regular people. Um, so I wanted to make the material in the book um, make it obvious that good reasoning is easy to do, um, and it's for regular people. Uh, I, I also think that um, people intuitively recognize the main principles of reasoning uh, that are outlined in the book. In, uh, in other words, um, just by virtue of the fact that we're humans, we understand good reasoning. Um, so I suppose the secondary goal here was to provide some vocabulary or structure to what people intuitively recognize um, so that maybe when they're reading the material in the book, they might say, oh, yeah, of course, this makes this makes perfect sense, even if they've never engaged in, in any kind of formal study of reasoning or logic. Very um, good. I, you know, one, one follow-up question I have. I mean, you know, one yeah. thing that I noticed about your chapters on reasoning is they, they tend to lean pretty heavily on, you know, Aristotelian, Ciceronian reasoning rather than the more modern, you know, formal logic that tends to emerge out of the math department. I mean, is that a, a conscious choice on your part or, or, were, or were you, re, you know, going strictly for accessibility there? Uh, somewhere in between, maybe. I, th- I think it was a conscious choice on my part, but, but yeah, my overarching goal was to really make it accessible to everybody. Mm-hmm. All right, very good. Well, I want to get uh, philosophical with part of your text. In your chapter on facts and opinions, you use objective and subjective in what I would call conventional terms, with objective meaning roughly verifiable, but you don't really get into the weeds about the distinction between the things being an object, which always depends in some sense on the subject standing in relation to it, and I'm, I'm borrowing from Kant's critique of pure reason here, and the things being in itself, you know, uh, which is, you know, inaccessible to the subject. Uh, and I wouldn't bring this up if I didn't see philosophy informing so much of your project. So, uh, you know, other than Kant being in, impenetrable, why did you stop where you did with the subject and object relationship? Uh, well, I guess I'll give you a short answer and a long answer. Uh, the, sh- the short answer is um, wanted to keep the discussion in that chapter focused pretty narrowly on what the reader really needed to, to have in order to apply these ideas to making good arguments. Mm-hmm. And I think at that point, a longer discussion on the question you're raising would have taken us pretty, pretty far afield, I think. Um, my, my longer answer, uh, I, I, I don't think I'd prefer thinking of objective as, um, uh, as what's verifiable. I think I, I, think I would... Uh, want to focus on the idea that the objective is that which is independent of our private personal preferences or something like that. It's, it's out mm-hmm. there in the world rather than being my own preferences. And I think the point of making that distinction in the chapter is to make a, a, a subtle or maybe not so subtle apologetic for making arguments, uh, and while at the same time addressing a, a pretty widespread cultural phenomenon, at least that, that I've seen, namely the the thinking that says that religious beliefs are merely a matter of private opinion, whereas the empirical sciences, for example, are matters of fact. And so, you know, I, we try to point out there that whenever we, we try to define fact and opinion, things can get pretty confusing pretty quickly. So that's why I'm, I'm trying to reframe that 
fact and opinion distinction to a distinction between objective and subjective, where subjective refers to my own personal private preferences, like you know my claim that chocolate ice cream is the most delicious or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the objective would be public things out there in the real world. You know, mm-hmm. copper is more dense than zinc, or Jesus rose from the dead. And so part of my not-so-hidden agenda, I suppose, is to establish the re- relevance of good persuasive argumentation to matters of what might be called religion, uh, the existence of God, the identity of Jesus, and things that our culture might say really are just matters of personal preference or personal opinion. But the, the point I try to make towards the end of that chapter is that if, if religious beliefs are merely about my personal preferences or my opinions, then argumentation becomes pointless and futile. To, to paraphrase the Apostle Paul, if my claims about Christianity are merely matters of personal opinion, then my argumentation is empty. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, it comes, when it comes to the subjective, there's literally nothing to argue about. Um, so, so perhaps I'm secretly or not so secretly advancing the, the cause of religious realism there, and, and I, by that I just mean that uh, religious claims are claims about the real objective world, uh, and therefore they're true or false by virtue of what they speak about. They're not reducible uh, to matters of personal psychology. Okay, very good. I hope I that mean, answer makes sense to you. Oh, yeah, yeah, that makes some sense. I want to follow up on it a little bit. I mean, you know, one of the criticisms of, of that sort of religious realism approach uh, is that it, you know, somehow diminishes the existential, that it, you know, takes out the uh, the need actually to be faithful to something. You know, if you can just prove something and have done with it, then it is, um, you know, there's no need at that point really for a persistent, you know, uh, oh, what what is uh, Friedrich Nietzsche's uh, phrase, the, the long obedience in the same direction. Um I, I don't get that sense from you, but I mean, what would you say to that kind of critique? Yeah, I mean, I suppose taken to the extreme, what I'm saying could lead to that, um, but mm-hmm. I'm not, uh, I'm not a fan of claims to certainty. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't, you know, when you, you used the word "prove" a moment ago, I, I'm hesitant to use that word mm-hmm. um, because it, it tends to elicit responses that that I don't think are justified. I, uh, if by "prove" Um, do I think that we can uh, convince any reasonable person that the claims of our arguments are true? Well, then no, I don't mm. think we can do that. Instead, I, I'm, I think we should focus on giving good reasons. And I, I, I understand the critique, but I, d- I really don't think that it detracts from uh, the more existential components of relig- or the, the faith components uh, of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Very good. Um, I, I found a kindred spirit when you started uh, making points about dictionary use. I, I <laughs> Students who have studied with me know that I have my uh, dictionary rant, uh, and now I can assign them as reading, so it's, it's even better, right? Uh, so talk about your section on dictionaries for a moment. What do college students need to know about how the noun definition relates to the verb to define? Uh, yeah, to, to quote one of my former seminary professors, uh, words do not have meanings, words have usages. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that might be overstating things just a little bit, but I do think it's an important I, idea. I also teach Wittgenstein, so I'm, I'm on the page, I'm on the same page here with you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I find that, it, at least in my experience, many students don't really understand this idea unless we explain it to them. Uh, what, so one of the points I try to make in that chapter 
is that dictionaries fill an important descriptive role. Uh, but in general, we shouldn't think of dictionaries as filling a normative role. And, and, and in other words, dictionaries are not you know, given to us from on high. Moses did not come down from the mountain with, the, with Webster's Dictionary. Uh, they, don't, they don't pronounce with authority what words mean. Uh, and so that's what I mean when I say they don't fill a normative role. I don't know. Maybe normative isn't the best word to use, but I hope I hope you see what I'm saying. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, in in some sense, it is normative because this is the normal usage. But on another sense, right, this yeah. is not a it, it's not a divine imperative, like you said. Right. So uh, so a dictionary is more like a linguistic researcher who mm. studies the way people use words and then reports on her findings. You know, she goes out and listens to the words that people use and pays close attention to the ways in which. They use them, and then she writes her entries in the dictionary and reporting to us the way people use words. Uh, the point is that dictionaries don't define words. People define words. Uh, dictionaries simply tell us about the definitions that people have given to those words. Uh, and, and, of course, the way I relate that to the overall project of the book is to highlight the importance of defining words and arguments. And uh, if I want to make a persuasive argument, I need to define words at the right time and in the right way. And we try to give some guidance on how to do that. Mm-hmm. And there's a difference between the common usage that you'll find in a, a Merriam-Webster's dictionary, and then specialized connotations for words that you'll find in a you know dictionary of medical terminology or a dictionary of theological terms. Yes, and that is that is a point I I try to make to my students uh, semester after semester as well. Uh, there's the, dictionaries aren't nearly specialized enough to give adequate. Uh, descriptions of, of how words are used in in uh, specialized fields of study. Very good, very good. Well, the middle chapters of this book stay on your large-scale project with discussions of analogy and causality, uh, two principles that might surprise folks who expect a writing textbook to spend its time on MLA format and comma rules and such. So why are these two thought structures, causality and analogy, important for college students and seminary students to take on uh, in a course that involves writing? Well, yeah, I mean, the primary purpose of the book um, is to help people learn how to make good persuasive arguments. I don't think um, I had in mind, or we were really thinking of a writing class in particular, but I, but of course that would be included in our anticipated audience. Um, mm -hmm. let, let me uh, let me take analogy and causality causality separately, if I could. Very good. Um, uh, analogy, I think, is one of the most effective ways to convey new information, and so by extension, it's one of the most effective ways of making a case uh, in support of a claim. I think I suspect that the reason that analogy so effective has something to do with the way our rational faculties are, are hardwired, uh, for lack of a better way to say it. And maybe this is the way that the reason why uh, Jesus taught in parables so often. You know, he know, he, he, his audience knows something about farming or about sheep, and so to teach something new about his kingdom, for example, he leverages these features of farming that were relevantly analogous to his kingdom and then was able to draw it, the audience in and teach them something. Um, I think just about everyone has an intuitive understanding of the effectiveness of analogy. So I consider them to be an, an indispensable tool uh, in the toolbox for argumentation. If we want to be persuasive, analogy really is an effective way at, at connecting people to, to the claims that we're making. Uh, regarding cause and effect, 
uh, I suppose the reason that this is so important is, is that so many of the hotly debated issues in contemporary society are matters of cause and effect, you know, whether uh, whether vac- vaccines are effective at preventing diseases or whether they cause certain disorders or whether human activity is causing climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I see, though, is that causal in causal reasoning, mistakes are fairly common. Uh, and I'm not sure if you picked up on, on that chapter, uh, if you picked up on this, but I was deliberately trying to be uh, to take a more cautionary tone in that chapter. Oh, yeah, even absolutely. The, mm-hmm. the positive guidance that the chapter provides about how to make a good causal argument is framed uh, in terms of, you know, make sure you don't make these mistakes. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I think people are going to try to make causal arguments no matter what, so my goal was to provide some help, helpful guidance on how to do that without making mistakes. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting you you bring up uh, climate change. I, I was actually listening to another podcast recently where they uh, they were talking about an analogy that you know often gets uh, used there. Uh, and you know the the example they gave was that the argument that you know the Earth's temperature has changed in other eras, so therefore humans aren't causing it. And what the you know the advocate for uh, climate change education was saying was. Uh, you know, that's something analogous to saying, well, people die from reasons other than murder all the time, so therefore I couldn't have murdered him. And I thought, <laughs> you know, that's that, that, that's not an approach I have heard, but that, uh, I don't know why they don't use that more often. That <laughs> Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Well, at any rate, speaking of, uh, you know, MLA format, uh, your chapter on incorporating published authors into one's own work speaks almost nothing about where the commas go, what goes inside and outside the parentheses, or other things that people often bring up when I tell them I'm, I'm an English professor. Uh, so I've got theories about why you wouldn't spend pages on those matters here, and you've already hinted at them before, uh, but I want to hear it from you. Why no style guide in this book? Uh, yeah, I'd love to hear your theories. Uh... <laughs> Uh, to see to see if what you're thinking is is what I'm thinking. Well, uh, my, my my theory is strictly an economic one. Uh, you know, why make people pay for more pages with a style guide when you can go online yeah. and find half a dozen, yeah. you know, very good style guides that get updated every month, and therefore you never have to worry about whether you're in a seventh edition or eighth edition environment. Yeah, that's definitely part of it. Uh, I I. I think the short, shorter answer is, uh, or I think the short answer to your question about why no style guide, I, the part of the, what we're trying to do there is to focus on really the most important things about making arguments. Uh, when it comes to incorporating the work of other authors, this is something I, I feel pretty strongly about. The most important thing for somebody who's writing a paper, if, if I'm writing a paper and I'm incorporating the ideas of another author, the most important thing is that I make it clear to my reader in the main text of my paper when I'm relying on the words and ideas of another author and how I'm relying on them. So in that, in yep. my mind, that's drastically more important than making sure the commas are in the right place or make sure that the parentheses are in the footnote properly. Uh, the right way to give credit to another author is, is much more than just putting a footnote at the bottom of the page. Um, and if, I, if I'm depending on another person, another author... And I owe it to, to that person to tell my readers as clearly as I can in the main text of my paper, uh, you know, to name that person and tell my readers how I'm depending on that person. 
And, and other than that, beyond that, yes, you're right. I, there's no sense in repeating what you could pick up in any of the style manuals that are available. Right, right, and, and that's good. I mean, I, it's funny. I, the, 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 what you just said, I, I hear myself saying to my students, semester after semester, that you know the reason that we cite is because the nature of what we're doing is a conversation, and your reader needs to see where your source material ends and your interpretation of the source material begins. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you right. know, uh, different style guides do that differently. You're right, the Chicago Style Guide calls for a footnote to mark that transition. MLA calls for a parenthetical citation, APA, parenthetical. Uh, but what they all have in common is it's a visual mark of where the transition happens. Well, I want to pose uh, one of my pet historical questions when it comes to teaching rhetoric at the college level. Um, do you think that the move that I mentioned in the opening uh, in the late 19th, early 20th centuries uh, to having rhetoric at the conclusion of education after grammar and logic to the beginning as a course one takes before one begins one's major courses, do you think that that move on balance did more harm or more good? Or if you want to take things in a more speculative direction, would colleges educate better or worse if we abolished first-year composition and replaced it with final-year rhetoric? Well, with the historical question, you've definitely uh, gone past my expertise. I okay, all right. <laughs> I have an, an ability to intelligently uh, comment on the shifts of applied educational theory. But, mm-hmm. you know, like everybody else, I have an opinion. So sure. I can share that. Uh, in, in my experience... Um, Universities expect college students to write papers uh, in which they craft arguments to support a claim mm-hmm. uh, in, in all sorts of classes in different fields of study. I'm not necessarily even talking about writing classes, uh, just in any old class that a student takes. So w- we ask our students to make arguments, and I think we do that even though when we know or suspect that they, that they don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the reasons why we should continue to do this is because, you, you know, you have to you have to make arguments in order to learn how to make arguments. Okay. Uh, so if I was defining if I was designing curriculum, you know, I, I would require a first year course of study that includes grammar and logic and rhetoric, and and I would require courses of study all along the way that uh, that have to uh, that require the student to apply those and principles and refine them in their various courses that they take. And I think I'd also require a capstone mm-hmm. uh, that requires students to demonstrate a proficiency in uh, in making good arguments. Okay, good. I, that is a good theoretically informed response to the question. Uh, when you do read the history, there's almost no theory involved in the shift in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, historically, it was when uh, Cambridge and Oxford and Harvard and Yale started admitting working class students into the university. Mm. Uh, you know, the professors, and I mean, you know, I'm not speculating about this. This is what they wrote, is that we need something to make sure that those who are not worthy of what we teach don't end up taking up space that worthier students might occupy. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, the, 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 the old stereotype about the gateway class or the gatekeeper class, uh, I mean, mm. it's, it's got real historical roots. So, like I said, I, I think your reasons are much better than theirs are. <laughs> oh, wow. 
Um, now I want to try out a pedagogical question with you. Uh, I know the book is called Good Arguments, uh, but I've been experimenting the last few semesters with trying to stay away from that noun uh, argument, which my students tend to associate with social media belligerence. And instead, I've been trying to use line of thought, which I think I ran across in a translation of Aristotle, but I've seen it in a couple different rhetoric books over the years. Um, obviously, I mean, your title, I mean, the front cover is Good Arguments. Uh, why do you stick with that noun argument? Well, uh, may, maybe we're fighting against unstoppable cultural forces. I don't know. Uh, but I, I suppose part of what I want to do is preserve the traditional language. Um, mm -hmm. I, line of thought. I, uh, I mean, my initial thinking there is that that's, that term is too thin, if I can use that expression. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, capture the, to capture the full scope of what argumentation is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just, just to give an example of the kind of thing I'm thinking, you know, when, when we think about an argument, uh, well, an argument can be valid or it could be fallacious, and we ought to evaluate the argument to determine which it is. Mm -hmm. But when we say something like line of thought, it, it seems something like, well, I have a line of thought and I could tell you about it, but um, the concept seems to me to be a little too thin and maybe so thin that it's immune from that sort of critical evaluation. Ah, okay. Um, okay. So, so I think the word argument is, is thick enough to capture more of what we mean when we use the word mm -hmm. uh, and the alternatives that we might come up with, at least the ones I've heard, are a little bit too thin. Mm -hmm. um, and so, in, in, you know, in, in the, as you know, in the, both the introduction and the first chapter of the book, we try to address the false association that people have with the word argument to other concepts like disputes or fights. Mm -hmm. uh, so, right, I, I genuinely believe that arguments are good, and I, I would hope that we could try to recover that word Very and help good. others see that as well. Yeah, it, it reminded me of the uh, opening chapter of, uh, oh, now, now now I'm losing his name, but the uh, the rhetoric textbook, The Office of Assertion, um, you know, the and I'm going to remember his name as soon as we stop recording, uh, but he has a chapter, you know, defending the noun rhetoric and talking about how, you know, politicians now basically use rhetoric as a synonym for lie but mm -hmm. you know that in this book yeah. we won't be doing that yeah uh, and, and, and I still can't think of the author's name so listeners I mean go back to our episode several years ago about that book uh, we mentioned the author's name and now I can't remember it but uh, Rich we're both teachers for Christian institutions uh, so take a few minutes here and talk a little bit about the connections between the life of faith and the practices of logic and rhetoric, uh, what positive connections, cautionary words, or other relationships do you focus on when you teach your students to write? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think um, that our rational faculties that we have uh, are reflections of who God is, and I think we have them because we're made in His image. Uh, I also think that God is a, is a God of truth. If I'm right about that, if I'm right about both of those things, then reasoning well, uh, that is reasoning that helps us to grasp what's true and flee from what's false. Uh, reasoning well, uh, in a Christian context, I think ought to be thought of as an act of worship and devotion to God. And so in that sense, rhetoric is as devotional a practice as prayer or daily scripture reading, in my view. Um, 
given the extent to which Scripture uses argumentation, and even Jesus in particular uses argumentation to appeal to our reason, I think I have some good ground to stand on here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, of course I should and can I can teach the principles of good arguments to non-Christians. After all, that you know they're made in God's image too. Uh, but I think Christians, especially, ought to be motivated and eager uh, to learn the principles of good reasoning and to get them right um, as a matter of devotion. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe a couple of cautionary words. Go ahead. You were gonna. Oh no, no. I was just gonna follow up and ask. I mean, you know, one of the criticisms, and again, I don't get the sense that this is where you're headed, but it might, you know, it might occur to some of our listeners that uh, the modern apologetics movement uh, often gets the reputation, rightly or wrongly, for, you know, being a form of belligerence uh, rather than being a form of invitation or, you know, uh, welcome to the other. Uh, I have a hunch that those two things can stand in a different relationship than opposition. Uh, so how would you describe the relationship between argumentation and hospitality? Yeah, that was actually where I was going to go. Oh, good, 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 good. So carry yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think a couple of, of cautionary words to, to go to what you're saying here. First is that we're finite creatures, right? We have imperfect rational faculties, though they are a reflection of God's image, they are imperfect in us. Uh, and so we're going to get things wrong, e- even when it seems to us that our arguments are airtight. Uh, even when, it, when I am thoroughly convinced by my own argument, uh, I, I still can get a lot of things wrong. Um, and and second, secondly, and related to that, as a Christian, I think I need to remember that my goal should be to win people, not win debates. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if I use argument to win a debate and simultaneously I create relational alienation, I've, I've gone terribly wrong. Uh, arguments should be about win- winning people, not winning debates. Mm-hmm. Very good, very good. Well, Dr. Holland, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality... Uh, I want you to have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about writing, argument, or whatever else as we head for the door today? Yeah, I, I, I think your previous question about the connection between the life of faith and the skill of argumentation really is the most important point. So I'm glad you gave that question a, a prominent place here in our conversation. Uh, in addition to that, I suppose I'd want to remind uh, the listeners that argumentation really is aimed at discovering and understanding truth. So anyone who's interested in believing what's true should be intensely interested in evaluating the arguments that they hear from others and in making good arguments themselves. Uh, And I suppose as my last word, at at, uh, the risk of committing the fallacy of equivocation, I'll say say to you and the listeners, uh, may you lose all of your arguments but win many to your way of thinking. Very good, very good. Rich Holland, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you. It's been great. Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. Uh, The book is Good Arguments from Baker Academic, and Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.